NATO has kicked off its biggest military exercise in decades. The alliance will carry out four months of drills. Steadfast Defender 24, that's the name, and it aims to showcase NATO's ability to deploy forces from North America and elsewhere to reinforce Europe. The largest NATO exercise since the Cold War is underway in the North Atlantic. The most powerful military alliance on the planet is putting on a show of strength, hoping that the Kremlin is watching. Yet will it do anything to turn the tables in Ukraine where the war, approaching its second anniversary, has ground to a stalemate? While NATO members are individually supporting Ukraine's war effort, NATO's writ stops at the Ukrainian border. As Congress struggles to reach a deal to resume American military aid and a closely contested election looms, there are understandable jitters among the rest of the alliance about the US's long-term commitment to European security. Welcome to Power Play from Politico, where we talk to some of the world's most powerful people on both sides of the Atlantic. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week my guest is David Quarry, Britain's ambassador to NATO. As a founding member of the alliance, the UK is determined to ensure it endures. But is its transatlantic underpinning still secure enough to cope with testing times, many crises and political headwinds? David Quarry, welcome to Power Play. Thanks, Anne. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So we're approaching the second anniversary of the war in Ukraine and pretty clearly we've reached a stalemate on the front line. What do you think is capable of breaking it? Well, as you say, we're, we're nearly at the two-year anniversary mark of Putin's brutal and illegal invasion. It's really important as we uh, come up to that anniversary that we recognise how heroically the Ukrainians have fought, how hard they have defended their sovereignty and territorial integrity, and how well they've done in the face of often overwhelming odds. It's incumbent on all of us here at NATO and uh, other partners to be doing as much as we can to support them. So let's talk a bit about what that looks like in detail. NATO doesn't send weapons directly to Ukraine. That is for individual member states to do, though since last July, the NATO-Ukraine Council has been coordinating efforts. And as an ambassador from one of the founding members, do you feel frustrated that too little of that pledged support is getting through in a timely manner? We want to see everybody increasing their support to Ukraine in both quantity and quality recommitting for this year, signing the long-term agreements, but most of all, coming up with the hard cash and with the equipment that Ukraine needs. The EU recently acknowledged it would only be able to deliver just over half of the one million ammunition rounds that it had promised to send by March. And I'm suggesting that maybe some patience is running out in, in Ukraine and some worries beyond that about this tendency of big international institutions or blocks of countries who are supportive of Ukraine winning, but either can't deliver in time what they've pledged, or maybe we're unrealistic about what they were pledging in the first place. Your view? We're in a war of industrial defence, industrial production now. I mean, it is absolutely critical in the coming months that both as governments and as the, the Western defence industrial base that we increase our production and that we increase our supplies to Ukraine. We are all learning hard lessons about the levels of stockpiles that we hold 
about the sort of residual capacity in our defence industry. And I think there are big points for the future about how we can ensure that we can scale up quickly as circumstances require. But the most important thing, as you say, is that we do everything we possibly can now to get the supplies into Ukraine as quickly as we can. It's a lot about ammunition. It's a lot about air defence. It's also critically about how we help Ukraine rebuild its own defence industry inside Ukraine, because that's going to be the quickest easiest way for them to resupply in the future. So in Washington, we have congressional leaders struggling to agree that big 60 billion package of support for Ukraine, that's it in dollars, bound up in a much bigger deal still on the US-Mexico border and also aid for Israel. Won't it be a huge blow if Congress doesn't pass it this week? We really want to see that happen as quickly as possible. And we've had Uh, British ministers, including particularly the Foreign Secretary, speaking to congressional leaders in Washington about what we see as the importance of that package coming through of US funding. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg, when he was in Washington last week, also made a very powerful case about how NATO generally, but support to Ukraine specifically, was all very much in the US's security interests and in the alliance's security interests more generally. So we really hope to see early progress on that package. It'll be very important, both in terms of the substance, but also the political signal that it will send about the West's enduring commitment to Ukraine to see this through. And where would you say that leaves the commitment of a a large country in Europe? I'm thinking here of Germany as still for all problems and setbacks, the economic powerhouse of Europe and the European Union relative to its output and per inhabitant, its funding for Ukraine is less than some of the Baltic countries. Now, of course, there is an issue of of scale here. And uh, I know a lot of German politicians and others, when I raise this, say, well, yeah, but mass counts. You know, a lot of money is is still worth a a lot to Ukraine. But the argument in Germany does seem to be sharpening about whether to continue at this level of commitment to Ukraine or whether, in fact, there are those, and Munich Security Conference, this will will come up, we're saying, well, we're not actually making the progress we hoped and maybe it's better to look towards a deal. Well, we really welcome the announcement that the German government has made about, I think it's 8 billion euros of military support for Ukraine uh, this year. We want everybody to continue doing what they're doing and indeed build that out across the course of the year. And if things are tough on the battlefield at the moment for the Ukrainians as they are, the only answer to that can be for us all to do more and for us to do it quicker. So we welcome the announcement that Germany has made about its support for this year. We look to others to follow that lead and the lead that we gave when the Prime Minister was in Kyiv. Because, as I say, the only answer to all of this must be that we continue giving the Ukrainians what they need to prosecute the battlefield on the, on the battlefield now, but also to look ahead for the rest of 24. And who knows, perhaps into 25 as well, because they're going to have continuing deep need for, for support from, from Germany, from the UK, from the US and from NATO allies generally. Let's look to the US presidential election later this year. There are questions over the US's long-term support for the war in Ukraine. If there is a change of administration, is that something that w- would be concerning you? Look, I'm not going to get into US politics. It's a long way to the US election uh, in November. We're really focused now on the Washington summit in July That's going to be the 75th anniversary of NATO, the world's most successful military alliance. 
and also making sure that we've got the right amount of burden sharing between American and uh, European allies, because that will be important, I think, uh, as a signal to all of US political opinion. And what about the actual shape of NATO itself when NATO members meet uh, for the annual summit in Washington, D.C. in the summer? That question of Ukrainian membership will be on the table. Uh, leaders last year agreed to expedite it, which is a bit of Zeno's paradox, though, isn't it? Always expedited and never getting there. And still some questions about whether it is right for Ukraine, given position, but also its internal politics and other factors, should join NATO. What are the pros and cons of this? Well, look, NATO decided in 2008 that Ukraine would become uh, a member. Leaders at the Vilnius summit reaffirmed that. I believe that Ukraine is getting closer all the time. We have the new NATO Ukraine Council that uh, you mentioned earlier. The question of membership, I'm sure, will be discussed again at the Washington summit. I don't expect a big leap forward on that, mainly because of the likely situation on the ground. But as my prime minister has said, yeah, we're absolutely convinced that Ukraine's rightful place is in NATO. It's a question of when, not if. And our job here is to continue supporting Ukraine as it comes ever closer to the alliance. Senior European politicians, I'm thinking here principally of Manfred Weber, the head of the centre-right EPP grouping in, in the European Parliament, have said Europe can't rely on the US any longer to be the principal guarantor of European security and suggest that the EU should start to develop its own nuclear deterrent. How plausible do you think that would be? Well, look, from my point of view, the US remains indispensable uh, to NATO and indispensable to Euro-Atlantic security. That, of course, does not excuse Europe, broadly defined in any way, from meeting its share of the burden. So, as I mentioned before, yeah, one of our key themes as we build up to the Washington summit in July will be the need for all allies who are not yet at 2% of uh, GDP in terms of defence spending to get there, all of us to be rebuilding our industrial bases, doing more to support Ukraine, contributing to the enhanced deterrence uh, and defence that's been such a theme of the alliance in the last few years. That's the responsibility on all of us uh, right now, I think. But I don't, I'm sorry, I don't think that's the answer to the question, really. It's just, do you think it's plausible? I think we've stated a number of times what, what you think is necessary. I am not sure what you think about this idea that the EU should start to develop a much clearer military identity and bigger commitments like a nuclear deterrent. We want the EU to be doing more in terms of its industrial capacity, more in terms of its contribution to Ukraine. But for us, NATO is, of course, paramount in Euro-Atlantic security. The US are an indispensable part of that. We do not want to see Europe and the US spinning off uh, in different directions. Our interest at the Washington summit in July will be to see the alliance stronger and more united than ever before. So I think it's about what we do together, Europe and the US, rather than thinking in terms of there being a kind of separate European security identity in these terms. Well, that's really, I think, is exactly the point. And just to put it the other way around, people who are in favour of a clearer European security identity and commitment might say, well, NATO would say that, wouldn't they? They would lose power as the major convening force as the Western alliance if Europe had what uh, President Macron used to talk about, that strategic autonomy, and that that would give Europe, if you like, well, more of a reason to step up. I mean, there might be some truth to that argument. Europe, broadly defined, does need to step up. We all need to do more in this world. But there's a, you know, we will be celebrating NATO's 75th birthday this year. It is the most successful 
political military alliance in history, and it has been the guarantor of our freedom and our values for those 75 years. It is a very precious thing, and I think all our efforts should be aimed at supporting NATO, protecting everything that is so good and powerful about it, rather than trying to create alternatives. So do you think that having a more defined, more muscular European defence identity would run the risk of weakening NATO? It depends how it's done. If it is done consistent with NATO standards in a way that uh, helps boost allied capabilities and that is open to non-EU allies' participation, well, that can actually be very powerful in not only building the EU's capabilities, but also reinforcing the alliance as well. If it is done differently, then it risks complications for the alliance. So strongly welcome everything that the uh, EU is doing in terms of building uh, defence capacity, but that should all be done in a way that is consistent with alliance standards and that is reinforcing the alliance rather than building an alternative structure. You know, I've been knocking around in this debate long enough to remember the enthusiasm in some parts of the continent for a joint European army under some, some form of joint leadership. Is that sort of dodo in this scenario? It is really not what people are talking about now. And you know, we are going, as I say, through the most significant transformation of NATO's uh, deterrence and defence capabilities since the end of the Cold War. We had the new plans agreed last year at the Vilnius Summit. We had the new force model approved the year before that at Madrid. This year we'll be talking about, leaders will be assessing how implementation of all that change is happening, really refocusing really back on uh, collective defence in a way that you know, we hadn't focused on so much in the many years that we were in Afghanistan and, uh, and elsewhere. It's that rather than kind of new European armies that people are looking at. And Manfred Weber also suggested that either France or the UK could take on responsibility for Europe's nuclear umbrella. I mean, he was thinking that far down the line, which is quite interesting, given where the nuclear deterrent sits in the argument about uh, strategy towards Ukraine. Has there been any discussion in NATO of that sort of idea? No. And why not? Well, we uh, actually, I think what we've seen during the uh, Ukraine conflict is how the alliance's nuclear deterrence has worked. What we have at the moment is working. US-led, the UK deterrent declared in, into NATO, uh, the French with their own uh, independent deterrent. This conflict has been a real reminder of the importance of nuclear deterrence for the alliance. So I think that's what people have been looking at. That's the lesson some people have been relearning rather than trying to think about some new possible alternative uh, model. You sound very sceptical. I think what we've got works pretty well at the moment. We'll hear more from the ambassador about how to handle that delicate Rubik's Cube of NATO after this. NATO is conducting its largest exercise since the Cold War, Steadfast Defender. You've got to love the names. Is there a whole naming department for these? Are they just your idea? <laughs> They're not my ideas, but I think they convey a sense of, you know, seriousness and purpose and gravity. And is the Alliance expecting a major conflict in the next few years? Because that's clearly the, the sense behind this. You know, as you say, clarity, purpose, steadfast, ongoing is what I hear there. 
if your marketing department has got its work right. Admiral Bauer, who heads the military committee of the alliance, said the public across NATO countries need to change their mindset for an era where anything can happen at any time and we should expect the unexpected. Is NATO kind of winning that battle, if you like, for the public? You saw the big fuss in Britain about the, the suggestion by an outgoing head of the army that we should think about some form of conscription and there was a bit like, oh my gosh, don't ask Generation TikTok to do that. I mean, are we... Are we living in a bit of a sort of, sort of suspension of reality that we want to be ready, but we don't want to have to do very much? Well, the Defence Secretary gave an important speech at Lancaster House recently uh, about precisely this and about the fact that we need to recognise that we are in this more complex, contested world. We see a difficult and dangerous Russia, which unfortunately is unlikely to get any better in the foreseeable future, as far as I can see. Uh, we've got a growing challenge in some areas from China. We've got a world order that is under some strain. So we've got to be prepared for that. And I think the Defence Secretary's point was, you know, for years, many allies took the peace dividend, so-called. But this is now a moment where we've got to have a national debate about how complex this current world is, how that is likely to remain the case for the foreseeable future, unfortunately, and how we need to make sure that we are investing in our national and collective self-defence through NATO to make sure precisely that we've got the deterrence capabilities to ensure that we don't end up in conflict. So obviously the best way to avoid getting into conflict is to show that you are ready for it and that we are serious and that we are long-term and that we are putting our money where our mouth is. Well, yeah, but actually that's like saying, you know, you're pretty sure what you think should happen. I'm just wondering how effective you think it is in terms of public opinion. So there's something about NATO's like compact and relationship with the democracies, which I have to say has worried me for some time, whether it was the sort of lagging behind of Germany and the, the over-reliance on the peace dividend there and beyond. And I thought the response in the UK as it happens, but I think it was sort of quite telling when uh, General Sir Patrick Saunders called for that citizen army to be ready for a potential land war. I wouldn't say that the nation rose up in arms saying, gosh, you're quite right about that. And we must start to think about it. There was much more a kind of shrug of the shoulders or like not on your nelly, as we might say in Britain. Well, I, I see increased interest in the UK in what we're doing here in NATO, because people recognise that NATO is the bedrock of our security. And I think, you know, I came here just, what, six weeks into the Ukraine war, into the invasion of Ukraine. And, you know, this last two years has been a real reminder, if people needed it, of what is at stake in terms of our security. You know, if you want to ask what the benefits of NATO are, you know, go and ask a Ukrainian. You know, if you want to ask what the benefits of living under a nuclear umbrella are, go and ask a Ukrainian. And so I think people are coming to terms with the fact that it is a more difficult world that we are living in at the moment, whether they're ready for... Well, I mean, a Ukrainian no, might, or, might also say that the Western alliance was there when it lost its nuclear deterrent and forfeited it in a negotiation with Russia in the 90s. We were in a different world with Russia then. And it is important to remember that for years, we tried to build a cooperative relationship. We had Putin attend a NATO summit. You know, these things seem incredible now, but we went through years and years of actually trying to build a partnership with Russia. It wasn't for lack of trying on our part that that did not work out in the end. But the conclusion now is that we've got to keep strengthening NATO, we've got to keep supporting Ukraine. And yeah, I think all of our populations have to be ready for the likelihood, the very strong likelihood, that we're all going to have to invest more in defence for uh, years to come. But there is no plan for a conscription army. 
And uh, Boris Pistorius, the defence minister in Germany, has said recently that he could envisage uh, Vladimir Putin even attacking a NATO country one day. Did you agree with that assessment? I think we've got to be ready for everything in this. But, and I do believe that you know, at various moments, including through his incredibly irresponsible use of nuclear rhetoric, Putin has tested us. He's tried to make this a NATO-Russia thing. He's tried to scare us with his talk about nuclear weapons. And I think we have done well in terms of not rising to the bait on that, and that we've been sober and serious and responsible about it, including when we had things like the missile landing in Poland. You know, I think the Polish were very responsible and measured in terms of their handling. We've shown great responsibility uh, in all of this. We've just got a signal that we're ready for it if it comes, because that is the best way to make sure that it never comes. And although NATO isn't directly involved in operations in the Middle East or the Red Sea in those American airstrikes, their American-led airstrikes, but with Britain uh, and others as allies continuing, does it worry you that West's attention and operational capacity are getting overstretched? No, I mean, it's it's a big concern for all of us. Obviously, as national governments, uh, what is happening in the Middle East at the moment, the pressure on shipping there, we've been acting uh, with the Americans. But I think we are, we are showing that we can do these two things at the same time and that it's absolutely imperative that we do do that, that we continue our support to Ukraine, that we maintain our focus there, we increase our support where we can, but that we also address the very real challenges that are, are present in the Middle East at the moment. So but there's been lots of political attention, obviously, on the Middle East, but I don't believe that is a reason why you know, support to Ukraine either is or should diminish in any way. And you'll have read the House of Commons Defence Select Committee uh, report uh, published very recently saying that there were grave doubts about the UK's readiness for all-out prolonged war. Is it humiliating for Britain that one of the Royal Navy's two aircraft carriers, HMS Queen Elizabeth, is no longer able to lead the big NATO exercise? And for a country, if you like, that talks big on defence has a big commitment, and I think you're, you, know, you're, you give a, a good account of it, to where we want to be in the world, looking both at the defence of the UK, but also to everything that matters across the Atlantic and the compact of democratic countries, that actually when it comes to our investments, we seem to have lagged behind and be only partly functional. No, look, we're NATO's biggest European ally. We, are, uh, we have the biggest defence budget in Europe. It's around 50 billion uh, sterling this year. We make a contribution to every NATO mission and operation. We commit almost all of our armed forces theoretically to NATO. Steadfast Defender, I think we've got 20,000 service people contributing to that. You know, the biggest operation since the end of, the, sorry, the biggest exercise, not operation, uh, since the end of the Cold War. And sure, one of the carriers has had a mechanical problem. It is a world-class piece of kit, but it is very, very complex. Things break sometimes. That's why you have two. So we've got another one that can actually take its place and still play a major part in Steadfast Defender. Of course, we can always do more. And we are all learning across the Alliance hard lessons about the need to be as ready as we can be with maximum capability. But we are investing a hell of a lot in this. I think it's about £288 billion in terms of equipment for the armed forces over the next 10 years. Major recapitalization of the army, recapitalization of the nuclear deterrent. Yeah, these are big programs that are going through at the moment. We're not exactly where we would want to be right now, but we've got a plan to get there. And as I say, this is part of something that we are all going through right now. 
And what would you change? I'm thinking about also the recruitment difficulties that uh, the armed forces are having, the Navy very much, and uh, the armed forces, and also how incredibly long it takes for people who do want to apply to go through this process. It's almost like there's quite a lot lot of of HR problems that beset a lot of the world's democratic world's armed forces. What would you say to someone, to a younger generation of people about why they should get involved in the country's defence or maybe spend some time in the, the armed forces? Well, I thought there was a really important section in the Defence Command paper, which came out last year, which was about these zigzag careers, as they're called in in the paper, which is about recognising that, you know, with modern families, often with two earners, different shapes of families, people wanted to do different things at different stages in their career. A classic model of somebody joining at kind of 16, 18 or 21, then staying in for a fixed amount of time, then leaving, that probably does not work for a whole lot of people now who might want to spend some time making a big contribution and learning a lot from being in the armed forces, but who have at other times to be kind of outside of the armed forces. And that we've got benefits to be had from training people up in various kind of skills, which they can take to the private sector, boost even further there, then bring them back to defence at some point. So it's a bit sort of counterintuitive, for I think, for armed forces who traditionally are quite hierarchical, very organised career structures. But I think it's very brave of them to be thinking now about what a different career pattern might look like that would make it even more attractive for, for new generations. Question we ask most of the guests who come onto this podcast. We hope we can count you going forward as a loyal listener and everyone you know in the whole of NATO. Um, who would you like to hear go through, which I hope has been an agreeable interrogation on power play? Who could we put on that would, uh, like you, lend us your ears? The person I'd really like to hear is Lord Ismay. But on the assumption that you need them to be alive, uh, yeah, he was our first uh, NATO Secretary General. But I think if we if we need a live one, George Robertson is always fantastic. Uh, I think he is a source of great insight and wisdom about NATO and about Russia and Euro-Atlantic security. And he tells a great story as well. So I think he would make an ideal guest. And he does have the mild advantage of still being alive. Thank you very much indeed, Ambassador, for joining us on Powerplay. My pleasure. Thanks so much for inviting me. Thank you. That's all for this week's edition of Powerplay. If you'd like to get all of our episodes as soon as they're published, please go ahead and follow Powerplay wherever you're listening. We're available on all major podcast platforms. The producer in London is Peter Snowden and the executive producer in Berlin, Christina Gonzalez. I'm Anne McElvoy. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 